of the books of the Minor Prophets. You remember there's 12 books in the Minor Prophets. This summer we looked at three of those books, three or four of those books actually. Uh, and about two years ago we looked at another three of those books. So we're making our way through the Minor Prophets, which has been good. And uh, certainly we've heard from the Lord what he has for us uh, through those particular books. But now we're going to jump back into the New Testament. We're going to pick up where the Gospel of Mark leaves off. The Gospel of Mark as the Gospel of John and Matthew and uh, the other one, Luke, uh, we know they're the biographical sketches of Jesus Christ. They, they look at his life, they look at his ministry and his work and his teachings, uh, and uh, we together, we were looking at the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to pick up or begin the process of picking up what happened after the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, was it all sort of over at that particular point? And just remembering back to good old days of when Jesus were here, or does the story continue? And as we're going to see in our study of the book of Acts, the story does continue. If you have a Bible with you, you may notice at the top of uh, the first page of the book of Acts, you might have a title. Uh, they are not in the original. The titles that we have in our Bibles are not in the original, and so it's based on the editors, what they thought uh, would be a good title. Uh, many of our Bibles have the Acts of the Apostles. Anybody got that? Class? Three of you. Four, five. Now you're getting uh, a little more excited. All right, so some of you have the Acts of the Apostles. Anybody have the Acts of the Holy Spirit at the top of their page? None of you. Really? Not a single one of you? Okay, well, some Bibles entitle it Acts of the Holy Spirit. And some of ours are just to the fact. No extra words. It just says Acts. Who's got that? You've got, you got a couple of just Axes out there. All right, well, these are some of the titles there. I think all of those titles... Titles, they certainly accomplish the purpose. They differentiate this book from John or Romans or, or something like that. But I, I think they're a little bit inadequate because they don't fully set in place what's going to go on in this particular book. I like G. Campbell Morgan's title for this book. It's a long one. Get your notepads. He says this, It is the book of the continued doing and teaching of the living Christ by the Holy Spirit through his body, which is the church. That's a long title. Imagine if we had to make a, a slide promoting our new study with that particular title. That would be a difficult one. But that's G. Campbell Morgan. And, and he really seeks to set out what is this book really about. And as you see, he puts it forth in that title. John Stott, similarly, he said this, it's the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by the Spirit through his apostles. And the point of both of those particular men with those little titles that they sort of put forth the point is, it looks at the continued work of Christ through the church as the Spirit of God guides and directs the church. And so those are thus helpful titles. Now, I imagine a bunch of us do not or did not memorize the final works or words of Mark. I told you we're going to pick up where Mark left off, so I'll read it to you. Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, it ends this way. It says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. 
and they, the church, they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and he confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So the book of Acts is the more detailed description of Mark's verse 20. Again, look at verse 20. They went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked among them or with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And so it's a more detailed description of that little description that we find at the end of the book of Mark. One of the commentators I read, his name is William Barclay. He said this, that the book of Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. I don't know how you, you say that Philemon's not important when God says it's his word. But the point that he is trying to make, the things we see and the things we learn from the book of Acts are so important for us as a church to be considering, even though they were 2,000 or so years ago. And the reason is that they're so important is because the story of the Christian faith, it doesn't end with the conclusion of the Gospels. It's just the beginning of the story of the Christian faith. We, we might say it this way, the Gospels are chapter one of the story of the Christian faith. And Acts continues that story, chapter two, chapter three, and so on. Because the book of Acts, it accounts for us the continuity of the doings and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus is still working, and he is doing so through his church, as his church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is a record of some of that working in the first century. Historically, the book of Acts, it covers a period of about 30 years of early church history, roughly from the year 30 AD to about the year 60 or 61 AD. You should know it is not the full history of the church during that time period. We have an example, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says this, And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was being built up. That's all it says about the church in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee in the book of Acts. Very little. I'm sure a lot more is going on than those few words that are penned there. One of the largest churches, if not the largest church in first century uh, church history, was a church that was located in northern Egypt, in the city of Alexandria. There's not a single mention of that church in the book of Acts. But clearly, plenty of things were going on in that particular church. So my point is simply this. The book of Acts is not a complete history of what the apostles did, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first century church. It's a portion of what the Holy Spirit was doing. So again, I don't think it's appropriate to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Apostles because it really only chronicles three of the Apostles in the book. There's plenty of other things that were taking place and that were going on in first century church history that are not recorded for us. But what we have is we have a selection of events. And these events reveal to us the rapid and also the miraculous spread of the Christian faith from a small group of people that were gathered in a room with the doors locked so nobody else could get in into the largest and most powerful city of the world at that time, the city of Rome. And so again, the Gospels were the work that Jesus began to do. And wonderfully, the work of Christ, it continues. And it continues on even in this day. There's 28 chapters that are found in the book of Acts. When we get to the end of this book, you're going to notice it doesn't end with a big bow wrapped around it. 
It doesn't end all kind of clean and tidy and neat. It doesn't end with the words, the end. They lived happily ever after or anything like that. It sort of ends in the middle of a story in many ways where you want to kind of tune in and say, so what happened? What happened? Yeah, that's how they get you to come back, you know, to keep watching the show next week when it comes back on. And so it just sort of ends in the middle of things. Now, I don't know if that was the design of the author. I don't know if some circumstances were such that interrupted writing or whatever it might be, but I do think we can see the hand of God in it because we know the story doesn't end. We know that the church of Jesus Christ continues to advance the teaching and the ministry of Jesus Christ even into our day. And so perhaps in some way, the Holy Spirit accomplished that purpose to minister to our hearts. Now go write chapter 29 and chapter 30 of the book of Acts. Now, of course, we're not going to write it in the scriptural sense, but we can continue the work that Jesus Christ began to do in the Gospels, continued to do in the Acts of the Apostles, and continues to do in his church even to this day. Would you agree? Amen? All right, fantastic. The book of Acts... I would suggest to you is a template for the church of Jesus Christ. How Jesus Christ desires for his church to operate both small c, the local church, and in any age that is living. It's a blueprint of the church that Jesus Christ himself laid down for each one of us. It's a model. And it's the model that we seek, as closely as we can at least, to emulate here at Calvary Chapel. It's a type of church we're seeking to create, the book of Acts kind of a church. As we'll see, the book of Acts, it offers the means by which God works in every age. And I think we can sum it up with this phrase. It's the spirit of God working through the word of God in the hearts of the people of God. That's not good. Just give me one second. Are you going to get those, Jim? Can you bend all the way down there? <laughs> just, uh, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, guitar. <laughs> I hope they didn't break. All right. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God. And that's what we seek God to do in each one of our lives. And that's why when we gather together as a body, when we gather together in smaller groups of people, almost always incorporated into that time together is the Word of God. That the Lord would teach us, the Lord would direct us, the Lord would guide us. He would use his word to refine our hearts that he might send us forth to accomplish his particular purposes. Hopefully you would agree with that. Here's the other thing. Another reason why I think it's a misnomer to call it the Acts of the Apostles, as I pointed out. There's really only three apostles that are sort of uh, traced, really just two of them, Peter and, and Paul in this book. And we know there are a number of other apostles interesting thing that you see in the book is a lot of people whose names you never knew before and you don't hear much of later on are chronicled in portions of this book and what that speaks to us is this the way in which God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things that's what God does in his church and so again for us here at Calvary Chapel we look to uh, Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about the work of the ministry is to equip the saints to go out and do the ministry. And so we are a teaching ministry by design so that we could be equipped by the word of God to go out and do the work of God as the Holy Spirit empowers us. We see that throughout, we will see that throughout our study of the book of Acts. Uh, yeah, the book of Acts. Now, with the book of Acts, many books in the Bible 
they begin with the author's name or, or somewhere along the way in our study of the book of Acts, they will tell us the author's name. Uh, the book of Acts doesn't do that. So within the book of Acts, it never says, and I, Peter, wrote this to you. However, we do know through tradition that the author is Luke. And we also have some evidences, if we dig into this a little bit and do a little research, that confirm the fact that the author is Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke begins Acts chapter 1 this way. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. Now, the first book written to this man, Theophilus, is, as we'll learn in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And so the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, the author also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's the first book that the author of the book of Acts references. And we can go back and we can discover the fact that the author of the book of Luke is Luke. And if he wrote the first book, then he's also the author of this second book. A second thing that we can do is compare the writing styles of the two men. How certain words are used, in, he would have written, in the Greek language. How sentence structure was formed, the type of words that were used, and so on. And if you go back and you compare the writing style of the author of Acts with the writing style of the author of Luke, scholars have come to the conclusion, same guy wrote these two books. And so again, if we know Luke wrote the first book, then he wrote the second book. I keep calling them books. They're not really books. They were scrolls. That's how they wrote in that particular day. They usually took, uh, they would take a piece of papyrus paper. They would uh, kind of glue it together on their ends so it would extend out to a, a long body of work. Longer books would have been something like 35 feet long in length, attached to a stick of some sort, carried under the arm uh, from one place to the other. Uh, once a book got past about 35 feet long, it became a little cumbersome to carry. And so they would divide that book into a couple of portions. Some have suggested the size of many of our New Testament books, some of the longer New Testament books, were limited to where they were because they wanted to keep it to one volume that they could carry under their arm. And so in that sense, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are not two separate books. It's probably two volumes of the same book. Luke set out to tell this guy, Theophilus, look, this is the faith. This is how it began uh, whatever we'll call it, uh, 5 AD or so. And, and this is where it went to uh, when Paul was imprisoned uh, toward the end of that particular time. And you have two books that are 25 chapters or so in length, 24 and 28 uh, to be specific. And so Luke writes, if you will, this particular book. Some scholars have suggested Luke intended to write a third volume as well. And so there's the first volume telling about Jesus. There's a second one from the Pentecost to Paul's imprisonment there around the year 60. And then there was another one that was to come after that. We don't have any record of that. And so whether he intended to write it or he actually did and it just didn't make its way uh, into our usage, we don't necessarily know. But we do know, obviously, the Holy Spirit saw fit to give to us what, what we needed. The book of Acts, the book of Luke, and nothing beyond that. Now we know a few things about Luke. And when I say a few things, I mean a few things. We know 
by his name, Luke's real name, he would have been more uh, referred to not as Luke, but as Lucius. We know from his name that he was a Greek or a Gentile, making him the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, at least that we're aware of, based on his very careful and exacting use of the Greek language, we're able to conclude that Luke was a learned individual, like in the sense of a classical education in the language. Luke's very careful with the words that he uses, and if he wants to say something, he makes sure he says it by choosing the correct word and his structure and all of those things, so we know he's highly educated. We know that Luke was a physician. We learned this from the Bible itself. The book of Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, Luke the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. And so we know his job, if you will. He was a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor. We know from a variety of places in the book of Acts, we know from that example there in the book of Colossians, is that he was a ministry partner of the apostle Paul. And so that Colossians example demonstrates that he greets people. He's with there, he's there with Paul, and he greets other people. In the book of Philemon, he greets uh, some folks that Paul is writing to. But then you'll notice Paul adds, he says, look, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. And then notice he calls them his fellow workers. And so they were ministry partners of the Apostle Paul going forth on these various missionary journeys. As you read the book of Acts, sometimes you'll notice, and we'll get there, Sometimes you'll notice where Luke will say, and Paul and the others, they did this as if he's not with them. And then other times it says, and then we did this as if he is with them. And so it's written essentially from his perspective. He was a fellow worker of the apostle Paul. We know some things, and we uh, can pretty safely agree with the Bible scholars and historians, that physicians in the first century uh, were almost always slaves. That's kind of surprising to us, because to be a physician, you need to be a highly educated individual, and you wouldn't expect that of your typical slave or something like that. And yet, in the first century, physicians were typically slaves brought up in the house of a master of sorts, who from a very, very young age were sent off and trained to be a physician. And they would ultimately go on to be the personal physician of the slave owner. And so if our friend Luke was a physician, it's pretty safe to assume that he was also a slave. Some assume that he was a slave of Theophilus and that in the process of caring for Theophilus and working closely and interacting with Theophilus, Luke, having known the Lord, was able to lead Theophilus to the Lord. That's all conjecture. We don't know necessarily. Some have even gone further to say, and the whole reason he wrote the books of Luke and the book of Acts was to communicate to Theophilus. Some suggested Theophilus gave Luke his freedom to go travel with Paul, and Luke wanted to give a gift back to Theophilus, and so he wrote these detailed histories that uh, Theophilus could know the Lord in a greater way. That's a nice story. We don't know it for sure one way or the other, but it's lovely to consider. Others have questions about the Theophilus. Okay, maybe he was Luke's slave owner. Some have said, no, I don't think so. And they have based it on Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke, he says, look, I I set out to write you this orderly account. And then notice he calls him most excellent Theophilus. 
Another way of saying that is your excellency, Theophilus, which was a phrase that was used of high-ranking Roman officials. And so some use that phrase and that phrase alone to draw the conclusion that Luke is writing this to a high-ranking Roman official, someone he, he may not even know or maybe just knows a little bit, and that he writes this letter to him so that this high-ranking Roman official can grow in his understanding. Tell me about this whole Christianity thing. Where did it begin? What's it about? Who's its leader? What happened when that leader died? You know, where did it go from there? And so on and so forth. And that Luke set out to write that. That's certainly a possibility. Since the book of Acts ends with the trial of the Apostle Paul, some have suggested that Luke was writing sort of a legal brief where the, the judge essentially said, look, I don't know enough about this faith. You know, do you have any material on this faith that I can dig into it, research it a little bit to discover some things? And some have suggested Luke wrote these two books, the book of Acts and the book uh, of Luke, to, to put that out there. Maybe. We don't know. So pick one you like. Here's another one. I'll give you a third one you can pick from. We should always have three choices. The third one is that Theophilus isn't actually the name of an individual. It's not Luke's master. It's not some Roman... Uh, what do you call them, uh, official, but rather it's a play on words. The word Theophilus might be translated lover of God, theos, God, the philos, uh, like Philadelphia city of brotherly love, that it's a lover of God or a friend of God. And in that sense, it's a symbolic name. Now, even those that are putting this forth as an idea, they don't know, okay, is it symbolic in the sense of we want to keep the privacy of this individual. Remember in the first century, as you're hitting 40s and 50s and 60s, persecution was beginning to grow against the church from the Roman government. And so if you're a Christian and I put your name on a piece of paper and the wrong official gets that, they can come hunt you down and, and perhaps kill you. And so rather than putting the name of this individual, Luke calls him Theophilus to give him a little bit of anonymity and the ability to say, well, I don't know what this is. That's not me. And so on, perhaps. Or maybe Luke is writing to a church. Certainly, as the church, we are the lovers of God. We are the friends of God. And so perhaps he uses that, that term to describe a whole body of believers. Again, we don't know for certain. But he set out certainly to accomplish a specific purpose. And in doing so, he accomplished a greater purpose. And that was to show the means by which God expanded the work of his son, even, Jesus Christ, so that the work of Jesus would continue even after the death and ascension of our Lord. And so with that, let's jump into, I'm going to borrow the title of G. Campbell Morgan. Let's jump into the book of the continued doing and teaching of the living Christ by the Holy Spirit through his body, which is his church. Amen? You ready? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. After this quick sip. It says, now in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we've already looked at, you know, this idea of two different books written by the same author. We already looked at who this guy Theophilus is. Take notice at, now at the third phrase of the first verse, 
and the beginning phrase of the second. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. I think the most important word in those phrases there, if you're a highlighter or a circler, is the word began. Because the word began implies that the work of Jesus didn't end with his death and his resurrection and ascension, but that it continues on into this book we're about to read and even beyond that. So if the writer had begun and if he had said all that Jesus did and taught, that implies that it's over, it's past tense, and now we're just learning about some events that happened in the past. Instead, he says it's what he began to do, the first book, is what he began to do and to teach. Again, by implication, and now I'm going to write to you as to what he continues to do and to teach. Jesus' work continues on. It's in a different manner, certainly so, from the way it was in the Gospels, but it continues nonetheless. The book of Acts is the work and teaching that Jesus continued to do. Luke says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he says, until the day when he was taken up. Now, we call that day the ascension of Jesus Christ. Some, some Christian sects or whatever place a lot more emphasis on this day. That becomes a holy day, the day of ascension, and so on and so forth. We just use the term. We don't necessarily designate it as some special day. But using the term, it's the day where he says until he was taken up. We call that the ascension. And Luke has previously told us some stuff about the ascension. At the, the end of Luke chapter 24, he said this, And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, his disciples, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So Luke finishes his first volume by giving us a little bit of information there. He's going to start now in the book of Acts. By, let's rewind a little bit. He's going to retell the story. And he's also going to give us a little bit greater detail here in the book of Acts. Now if you read the closing chapters of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, sometimes you can get the impression that Jesus died on Friday. He rose again on Sunday. And he ascended on Monday or Tuesday or something like that. The reality is we learn here in the book of Acts, it says that he appeared to them for 40 days. So Jesus' ascension into heaven doesn't come for 40 days after Easter Sunday. And during that period of 40 days, he appeared and then disappeared on multiple occasions to his disciples. And it was during that time that he presented himself and he spoke to them, as it says in the verse, about the kingdom of God. And so the opening 11 verses of Acts chapter 1 are going to tell us, communicate to us, what happened during that 40-day period of time. Again, the period from Easter Sunday to his physical return to heaven. And it's the physical return of Jesus Christ to heaven that marks the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of what we might call his heavenly ministry. And that is from his place seated at the throne of God, beside the throne of God, where he ministers through his church. That's his heavenly ministry, as contrasted with his earthly ministry, which we read about in the Gospels. This 40-year period of time is marking, or excuse me, 40-day period of time is marking 
this transition. And you can see the transition in verse 2. Look how verse 2 continues. He says, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he chose, he had chosen. That's a different means of transmission from the Gospels. So remember in the Gospels, Jesus would say, hey, follow me, I'm going to go up on this hill, I'm going to sit there, and the people would come and they would gather in his presence to learn from him, to hear from him. When was the last time you went and sat on a hill with Jesus teaching you? Physically, you don't do that, right? There's a transmission of the, there's a change in the means of transmission. Now, Jesus ministers to us, as it says in verse 2, through his Holy Spirit. And that is beginning to happen during this 40-day period of time. As it says in verse 2 there, Jesus teaches his people through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Luke goes on in verse 3. He presents himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Or proofs, I'm saying that wrong. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And so if this was indeed a legal brief for his excellency, Theophilus, you can see what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to put down in legal writing the infallible proofs of Jesus's resurrection. He says there, uh, after his suffering, he made himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. What he's doing here is proving that Jesus Christ didn't appear to one little guy somewhere, or, you know, we heard something about him, but none of us actually saw him. What Luke is going to do is demonstrate through many proofs the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important aspect of our faith in so many ways. Remember, Paul would say in another place, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're believing in vain. What are we doing here if he didn't rise from the dead? It's just a nice collection of nice sayings that we can hopefully learn some valuable lessons as if I'm reading Poor Richard's Almanac and learning some wisdom from Ben Franklin or something like that. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't accomplished what he said he accomplished. And so our friend Luke, what he is doing here is, through many proofs, he's establishing this man rose from the dead. The grave is empty. And it's empty not because his body was stolen away, but because he rose again from the dead and appeared to many people. Again, remember, Luke is a very detailed writer, very careful with his research. And if he didn't actually experience it himself, he went and researched and found out the information that he presented. For instance, was he at the birth of Jesus? Certainly not. But he researched it, and he found out all that he put uh, in his second chapter of his gospel for us. And so Luke wants to establish from the very beginning the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is a religion that is based on historical facts. That you could have gone back and you could have researched and you could have interviewed the witnesses to prove your case. Luke sets out to establish the fact of Jesus' resurrection. We know in the Gospels that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, he appeared to a woman by the name of Salome. We know that he appeared to two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. We read about that in Luke's gospel. We know that he appeared to the ten disciples without Thomas. And then he appeared again to the ten or the eleven apostles with Thomas. John 20 tells us that. 
We know from our study that there was a small group of about seven of the apostles on the Sea of Galilee that he appeared to. It was during that time that he restored Peter, who had denied him, as you recall. And so we know he appeared to seven witnesses there. We know this. This is from Paul's writing in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul said this. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, Christians at one time, many are whom, of whom are still alive. You can add in parentheses, he was probably thinking, you can go ask them. They're still alive. He says, many of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. Now think about this from the perspective of, if this is a legal brief, if this is a court case, you, you see the attorney getting up to prove the resurrection, and he calls the first witness. And that witness gives their detailed account of when they encountered the risen Christ. He says, thank you, you may sit down. Brings the next witness, then the next witness, then the next witness, then the next witness. And he begins to parade before them hundreds of witnesses. At some point, the judge is going to interrupt and say, okay, we get it. I got places to be tonight. Does everyone agree that he's proven his case that the, this Jesus rose again from the dead? And the people would say, yes, you've proven your case. That's what Mark, or that's what Jesus was doing with these appearances. That's what Luke is going to do in his coverage of those appearances through the rest of the book of Acts. He's going to prove the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he does, Jesus does so through these appearances here over this 40-day period of time. We also see in verse 3 of, chapter, of Acts chapter 1 where Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Another way of saying that is he taught them. No different from what he did in his first coming. He taught them, or in his earthly ministry, I should say. He taught them. He explained to them his word. He helped them have a greater understanding of things he told them before, but they just didn't get. Now he's going to explain to them from the context of the other side of the equation. Sometimes we talk to folks that are newly married, and we spend all of this time in our premarital classes with those individuals, and we talk about conflict resolution, and it, almost always the couple kind of looks at me like, we could probably skip this chapter. We don't have any conflict. We love each other so much, and everything is wonderful. And I'm thinking, come back and see me in three months after you're married, because you know that it comes. And then the couple comes back and you're like, oh, I see what you were saying. See, I think that's what's going on with Jesus here. He explained a lot of these things to them before about his crucifixion and things like that, and they just didn't get it. They couldn't really get it. But now that we're on the backside looking back toward it, oh, I get it. And he explained these things to them. He taught them. Now, I do want to interject here, just, as, just for like your personal training. There are some that will say, that there is special secret teaching that Jesus gave to certain disciples that occurred during this time period, during this 40-day period of time. They've gotten it somehow, and they're ready to share it with you. In the first century, we call those individuals the Gnostic individuals. Gnostic means knowledge. They had a special knowledge that was given to them by a special revelation. Oh, what's your chapter and verse for that? Oh, it's Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Don't believe it. Jesus reiterated what he had previously taught them. 
In the very same way, as you continue to go through the book of Acts, we don't see that special knowledge. And as you go through the epistles, where they're, they're expounding upon the teachings of Christ, we don't see that special knowledge. There's no way that you can properly uh, insert here something that isn't there. All right, Jesus reiterated the things that he had previously taught them, gave them a greater insight into these things now, looking back on his crucifixion and resurrection. We don't know all the things he taught them or went over with them, but we do know one of the things that he told them from verse 4. And it says, And so while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he taught them, at different times over the period of 40 days. And having had nothing else to kind of run through with them again, Jesus told them to return to Jerusalem and to wait there for the promise of the Father. And then he tells us what the promise of the Father is, and it is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, there was a period of time when they were, the disciples were up in Galilee, and then he tells them to go back to Jerusalem or go down to Jerusalem. It's interesting that that's where he tells them to go because it was in Jerusalem where the Messiah was despised and rejected and it now it will be in Jerusalem where the fresh witness of him by the Holy Spirit will begin and will go forth. I have a commentary, it's an old one that was written, I don't know, 80, 90 years ago and somebody else owned it a long time before me and they put a little inscription. Somebody gave it to a friend and in there they just put, Study of the book of Acts, quote, victory, unquote. And then they signed their name. And that's what the book of Acts is. It's about the victory of Jesus Christ. The faith wasn't destroyed when Jesus went to the cross. That's where our victory was won. And as I've been saying a number of times, it continues on. It continues on. You remember how the, many of the Gospels, I know Matthew and Mark in particular, how they end. They end with what we call the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave them a commissioning, a task, even as he's given you a task. And yet notice now how Acts begins. Because you would almost expect Jesus to say, pat him on the butt and say, now get out there and do what I told you to do. Let's go get him. But instead... He doesn't say, go get the work done that I told you to do. He says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. Well, you want me to reach the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a big task, Lord. There's no time to wait. There's no time to delay. I need to get out there, and I need to get it done. And Jesus instead, he says, no, I want you to wait. Now, notice what he's asking them to wait for. He's asking them to wait for the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. Because in and of themselves, they will never be able to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth and certainly be effective in doing so unless they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, obviously, he knows that. And so he tells them, I know you have a lot of work to do, but first thing you need to do is go back and you need to wait. And I think this is a lesson that we need to learn, we need to hear it, and we need to learn it as a church, as ministers, you know, those of us that are in ministry in one way or another, 
But I think it's a lesson that every one of us as followers of Christ need to hear and to know and to put into practice. There's a big task for each one of us as Christians. And the temptation is, let's just get to it. Let's go do it. I want to reach my family. I want to reach the people I work with. I want to reach those that are on the streets of Trenton. I want to reach the people in Bucks County and Mercer County. There's a lot of work to do and no time to not be doing it. Jesus instead, he says, to wait. To wait for the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. And so I think a, a good question for each of us is do you do that? Do you do it with regularity? Do you do it daily? Do you wait for the empowering of God's Holy Spirit to enable you to be who and what he has called you to be? Many of us don't. Much, many of us don't for long periods of time in our walk with the Lord. He tells these disciples they need to do that. And so many of us just get busy. I'm going to be a good husband today, and I'm going to be a good employee today. I'm going to be a good pastor today. And we've never sat with the Lord that day waiting for his empowering. And then we wonder why we run out of gas halfway through the day or 20 minutes into the day. Or why we run out of gas sometime during the week when the filling, so to speak, that we receive during our gathering time on a Sunday fades away or, or what was the word, leaks away, as Mark said in his prayer earlier. We need to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, A.W. Tozer was a preacher, an author, among other things, wrote a number of devotional works that probably many of you have read or at least heard the names of those works. And he wrote in the, the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s. And he said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, 90% of what that church did would come to a halt. But if the Holy Spirit were taken away from today's church, only 10% of what it does would cease. Now, I don't know exactly how he came up with those particular numbers, but certainly his point is this. His point is that the church which we read about in the book of Acts was ever dependent on the Holy Spirit for their empowering and their enabling for the work that God would have them to do. Not so much in our day. Even as a church that seeks to be, and certainly as individuals that know that we should be, too often we're not dependent on God's Holy Spirit. And so Jesus instructed his disciples, you have a work to do, you have a commissioning. But the most important work that you need to do is remain in Jerusalem, in their case, and wait for the promise of the Father. And as the verse goes on, what's the promise? The promise is the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now people ask, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Churches divide over what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Religious movements, sects within the Christian faith divide over this particular question, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're familiar with the term baptism in the sense of water baptism. And particularly in the Protestant um, tradition, we think of baptism in the sense of full immersion in a body of water, a lake, a, a swimming pool. We, we have a feeding trough outside that we fill up with water and we immerse the person in that water. And so, Excuse me, what we know of water baptism, what we think of when we think of John's baptism, is this idea of being immersed or covered over in something. In their case, water. 
And so John had baptized many of Jesus' disciples. He even baptized Jesus himself. So they know about this idea of water baptism and immersion and of covering. Jesus declares, not many days from now, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, as I study my New Testament, and you can do it as well, as I study the New Testament, I, I see three relationships or interactions that Jesus talked about that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. And please remember, the Holy Spirit is not an it, it is a he. All right, the person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And the first relationship with the Holy Spirit that each one of us can have, the whole world, as a matter of fact, has this particular relationship, and that is the Holy Spirit is with us. You can summarize it with the word with. John chapter 14, it says, And I will ask the Father, Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And so again, the first relationship interaction we can have with the Holy Spirit is this summarized in this word with. This means he comes alongside of us. He draws us. He ministers to us. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of judgment, as Jesus would describe. The Holy Spirit does that with all of humanity. You would not be a believer had not the Holy Spirit begun that work in your life, begun to draw you to himself. You say, well, no, that's not how it worked. I decided to become a believer in Jesus Christ. No, you didn't. You might think you did. You might look back to a time when you decided to go forth, but you would have never come to that place in your life if God's Holy Spirit wasn't working in you already, if he wasn't with you and drawing you and bringing you to the place where you realized you were a sinner in need of his grace. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. He rebirths us. We become reborn. The Holy Spirit is with us. Now, you'll notice in the verse that I quoted, Jesus taught us that there is an experience in addition to him being with us, the Holy Spirit being with us, where he actually enters in to our lives. And so look at the conclusion of that John 14 passage. He says, you know him, he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So that's a different experience. It's a dwelling with, and now there's this entering into where the Holy Spirit enters into the person's life in a separate and distinct way from the being with, he enters into a person's life. Perhaps this is where we get the phrase, and I don't know where we get it, where people talk about Jesus came into my life. Maybe this is what they're referring to. They're describing the Holy Spirit entering in. So is that what Jesus is describing in Acts chapter 1? I don't think so. When Jesus says, I want you to go back and I want you to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, I would suggest to you he is speaking of a third experience that we can have with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts comes after that, where Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. 
And so that event comes before. That's the second experience that I was describing. I'm trying to make my case here for you. I hope I'm doing so effectively. That's the second experience, the second experience of receiving the Holy Spirit into one's life. It's the experience that occurs at the time of salvation, when the Holy Spirit enters in. We learn this from Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. And so when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit enters into your life. It's the down payment of heaven, the earnest, as it says in some versions of our Bible. That the experience now that Jesus is referring to in Acts chapter 1 is in addition to that. It's a third additional experience that the believer is able to have with the Holy Spirit. And that is to have the Holy Spirit come upon them. Jesus refers to that in Acts 1 as being baptized with the Holy Spirit, being immersed in the Holy Spirit, being covered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit is a someone, not a something. He's the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I need a drink, I'm sorry. <clears throat> now, I know that some of us, smaller group here, so perhaps not, but that some of us perhaps have a slightly different take on these things on the when, the where, the how of the Holy Spirit's interaction uh, with his people. I think for many of us, it's a semantics issue. It's the type of words and terms. Are we talking baptism or filling? And so I think what you're describing, you know, I think it's a semantics thing for many of us. Because some feel as if the second experience with the Holy Spirit that I described, that that's the baptism. They associate baptism, water baptism, typically happens when? early on in a person's walk with the Lord, the beginning of a person's walk with the Lord. And so if water baptism is early on in a person's walk, then this immersion of the Holy Spirit, that's early on in a person's walk. And again, it's a semantics type thing. They like to go on to use the word filling, a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit. Others continue to refer to that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the terms that we use need to be something we die over necessarily. Certainly, we want to be true to the scripture and so on, but I don't think we have to fight over these particular issues. What I do think we can, the conclusion that we can draw is that there is a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit available to Christ's church, to you and to I, beyond the initial receiving of the Holy Spirit upon salvation. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the lives of these believers first century, first few days of the church, believers, and he empowers them for the work that he has for them to do. I believe you and I can have a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit in which he empowers you and I for the work that he has for us to do. Now, for the early church, that subsequent experience happened in the large group setting of Pentecost, which we'll read about uh, in a few weeks, perhaps. For you and I, that can happen in an individual experience, and it almost certainly will. In an individual experience, when we get away with the Lord, and we ask for the empowering of the Lord to come into our lives and upon our lives. There are some that suggest what we need as a church is another Pentecost. The reality is we don't need another Pentecost with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, just like we don't need another crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplished what he accomplished at the crucifixion. Jesus accomplished what he accomplished on the day of Pentecost. What we need to do is appropriate the work of the crucifixion and appropriate the work 
of the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was made available to empower each one of us. And so the Holy Spirit works with us. The Holy Spirit enters into us. The Holy Spirit can also come upon us to enable us and empower us for effective service. You think back to your study of the Old Testament, that's how the Holy Spirit worked in the life of the Old Testament saints. He came upon them for particular works. We see he did that with Moses. We see he did that with the 70 elders in the book of Joshua. We see, or uh, Numbers, we see he did it with Joshua. And many of the judges he did it with as well. We see he did that, he came upon the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and some of the others. That's the way he worked in the Old Testament. It's important to understand that the Holy Spirit works in a different way with you as a New Testament believer. In the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit came upon individuals to empower them for a specific period of time that they may accomplish a specific work. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is made available to each one of us not only to enter into our lives, but to come upon our lives with power for service unto him. And that power of the Spirit is a gift that has already been given and is available to each one of us in a fresh way. Now, some might ask, hopefully you are. I think it's a good question. How do I receive this gift of God's Holy Spirit? And the answer is in the same way that you receive the gift of God's Son, salvation. The Bible says that God gave the Son. It also says that he gave the Holy Spirit. How did you receive the gift of God's Son? Well, Scripture's clear. You did so by faith. You asked for the gift of his Son in your life. You appropriated his work on the cross. And so how then do you receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit? You do so likewise by faith. And that trips up a lot of people. A lot of people have all kinds of ideas as to how to get more of the Spirit. We need to gather together and we need to, to pray and chant and worship and do these things for hours at a time so that God will see how much we really want the Holy Spirit to come in our lives. And so people will gather, and oftentimes or sometimes they call those tarry meetings because the phrase that was used in some of the older languages is tarry in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem. Well, the Bible doesn't reveal that that is it at all. Some will say that it's sort of you go into your closet and don't come out of there until the Holy Spirit has come and cry to him and demand of him and all these things. The Bible says you receive the Holy Spirit the same way that you received his son, by faith, and simply by asking, God, I want more of you in my life. I want more of you upon my life. I want to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to accomplish what you would have me to accomplish in the world that you have put me in, the sphere that you have put me in, asking that of the Lord. I'm going to ask us as a church to do something. I don't typically do this. Uh, but I think it's important enough for us to do it. There's a book that I read a number of years ago that uh, some folks made me aware of, and it's called They Found the Secret. You can see a copy of it there. Maybe you've seen it on a bookshelf or, or what it might be. And this book, They Found the Secret, is a collection of 20 different biographical sketches of men and women of the faith, and the more recent faith, that came to discover the empowering of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And what's interesting about this book, and they're, they're names that you've probably heard of, a lot of the people, 
biographical sketches of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, Amy Carmichael, missionary, Oswald Chambers, uh, my utmost for his highest, is that him? I believe. Charles Finney, the revivalist preacher of the 1800s, United States. Dwight Moody, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Andrew Murray, Bible teacher and excellent devotional writer. And there's 20 of them here. I, I gave you a list of seven or eight of them. The, many of them, you've heard of these people. They were people that were accomplishing something for the Lord, good things for the Lord, they had a nice church that was going, whatever it might be. They've written their books, they wrote their books, and so on. And yet each one of them in these little biographical sketches you can read, they reveal, despite these things, I sensed something was missing. And the book goes on, they found the secret. Each one of them individually, apart from one another, found the secret of what was missing in their walk with Jesus. And here's what I'm going to ask us to do as a church. I'm going to ask each of us as a church to pick up this book. You can buy it. It's on Amazon or whatever, and they'll have it to your house before you get there probably this afternoon. It's 10 bucks. You can get it for Kindle if you're one of those types of people that like to read on your device or whatever it might be, and you can have it this afternoon uh, as well. And I'm going to ask each of us to read this book, not because the book's going to reveal the secret to you, but because what I wanted to do is I wanted to begin to stir within each one of us as followers of Christ in this particular church, the question, the question that essentially is formed in your heart that says, Lord, what's missing in my walk? Is there something more that you have for me? Is there an empowering of your Holy Spirit that I've never experienced? I want to experience it. And as you read about each of these men and women, as they journeyed through that process and they discovered the empowering of the Holy Spirit for their walk with the Lord, my hope is will inspire each one of us to get apart from the Lord in sincerity and ask for the empowering of the Holy Spirit on each one of our lives. I'll send out an email uh, tomorrow or so which gives you the details of the book and how you can order it. But I, I do hope, and I've asked our elders, we've all read it before, I, I believe all of us have, I've asked them to read it again so we can remind ourselves in a fresh way about these particular things. So pick that book up. They found the secret. Now, for the early disciples, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is the secret to their success in fulfilling the Great Commission. How did a group of primarily uneducated individuals, unskilled individuals, ordinary individuals, how did they advance the kingdom of Christ far beyond what Jesus ever did in his earthly ministry? They did so by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You remember what was said of them in a somewhat derogatory manner? It says, those that had turned the world upside down have come here into our city to do the same, essentially. How is it that a group of just regular old ordinary individuals could turn the world upside down? And the difference between when they were hiding in a room to when they're standing before emperors testifying to who Jesus is, is the coming and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that each one of us would experience that and that God would work through us as a church to accomplish that. I'll close with this final quote. This is from a fellow named Tertullian. You may recognize the name Josh quoted from him last week. 
in his study on worship. But Tertullian, commenting on the apostolic period of the church, he wrote uh, maybe two generations after that. He said this, We Christians have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very military camp, tribes, companies, palaces, the Senate, the Forum. Tertullian says, we have left nothing to you but the temple or temples to your gods. They impacted the entire world. A bunch of ordinary individuals. And I'll say it just one more time. What was the difference from when they were hiding in a room? It was the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. My prayer is that the Lord would do that in each one of us. Amen? You with me? Will you pray that prayer with me? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we are powerless in and of ourselves. Even when we're determined to, to work hard and to never, uh, never stop working and to just be so committed to it, Lord, we, we come up short. We come to the end of ourselves. We're not clever enough to convince others. We're not disciplined enough to follow through. In and of ourselves, we're weak. And we see the disciples were the same. Lord, I'll never deny you. And within hours, Peter denied the Lord. Lord, I'll go with you anywhere. Yeah, all of us will. And with hours, every one of them ran and abandoned you. But we don't say these things to judge those individuals. We say those things because we are those individuals. We don't have it in and of ourselves to live the Christian life and to accomplish the Christian commission. We need you. And so, Father, we thank you for our study here in this first opening few verses of the book of Acts as a healthy reminder of something many of us in this room know. Yeah, of course. And yet we, we sort of go on living lives as if we've forgotten. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, continue to draw us to the place where we cry out to you and ask. Empower us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.